You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at Conservative Review, powered by Westwood One Podcast Network. And it's a new week here. It's an exciting week. It's a week full of pitfalls for conservatives that we better be alert and awake. The first week that the Pelosi Congress will come in. Oh, whoops. They don't come in until January, but Republicans already defeated will act like the Pelosi Congress in the lame duck session. Lots going on, as we talked about last week. A lot of things conservatives need to focus on. But uh, today is Monday. We're kind of off today. The official, at least government-celebrated um, you know, holiday, government workers are off today. We're kind of half off, and you know, I've taken it easy today. Uh, working from home, my wife's home, so we we went out to lunch. We haven't done that in ages. Went out to a restaurant before she had to go pick up uh, the three year old at his playgroup. And uh, man, I never ate that much during the day, and I'm so tired now. There's something about the adrenaline, you know, just tapering off when you're not really working and at the battle station all day like I usually am. So I'm a little bit tired today. Uh, obviously, we're not putting out any written content today, so that will save pretty much for, I guess, tomorrow morning. Watch for my new article. There's a lot going on, but you'll be the first to hear the sneak peek of what is going on here today if you actually listen today on Monday. So it's Monday afternoon today. And, you know, again, we're recognizing officially in the legal sense Veterans Day, which was yesterday. And I just want to make one one more comment on Veterans Day before we move on to today's show. On Memorial Day, which used to be called Decoration Day, they would decorate the graves. President Calvin Coolidge, one of the greatest Americans of the 20th century, said in I believe it was his 1927 Memorial Day speech. And I think it's a good juxtaposition to Veterans Day as well. He said, reverence for the dead should not be divorced from respect for the living. If we hold those who have gone before in high estimation, it will reflect it in our conduct toward those who are still with us. It would be idle to place a wreath on the grave of the dead and leave ungarlanded the brow of the living. Our devotion to the memory of those who have served their country in the past is but a symbol of our devotion to those who are serving their country at present. I think that's really appropriate for Veterans Day in particular, where unlike Memorial Day, you're celebrating the the living veterans of our our wars. And you know, I was thinking the only way to celebrate the sacrifice of the dead is by ensuring that those veterans we still cherish today, those active duty members, are given the full support of a nation, meaning the resources, a definitive mission, defining who our enemy is, what is their threat to action, what are our strategic interests, how are they achieved, 
And are they worth the cost anytime we put them into harm's way? And once we answer those questions, and only once we answer those questions in the affirmative, do we place them in harm's way with all of the resources and the proper rules of engagement where there's only one rule of engagement, kind of like the Democrat political rule of engagement. That should be our military rule of engagement. We win, they lose. Minimizing any, any needless casualties. And you look at what's going on in Afghanistan. It just astounds me. See, reasonable people could disagree over the strategic integrity of a given mission. And I wouldn't call it immoral to send troops somewhere if I disagreed with the mission. But when we've reached the point that we all agree that there is nothing to do, nothing that threatens us unless we put our troops in harm's way, that there is a government we're propping up that is indistinguishable from the Taliban and they're not leading anyway, and they shoot our soldiers in the back, all of the recent casualties, or most of them, were due to these so-called green-on-blue attacks where it's our Afghani friends that were sinking billions of dollars and lives into propping up are shooting our soldiers in the back. All for what? A couple weeks ago, General Scott Miller, the new U.S. commander in Afghanistan, who himself was almost killed in an insider attack that injured a brigadier general and killed some Afghani soldiers, he told NBC's Courtney Kubey, um, this was this a couple weeks ago, he said, quote, now is the time to start working through the political process of ending the war in Afghanistan. And he said, my assessment is the Taliban also realize they cannot win militarily. So if you realize you can't win militarily, at some point, funding is just people are starting to ask why. So you you don't need to necessarily wait wait us out, but I think now is the time to start working through the political piece of this conflict. So he admits that there is nothing nothing left to do there. Okay? So that is why I feel it is accurate to say it is immoral – to leave our soldiers there in such a precarious situation, the worst of all worlds, where on the one hand, you're engaging in social work. You're not going on offense, but you're engaging in social work in a combat zone for an ally that's really an enemy to fight another enemy that's incapable of fighting it anyway. And by the way, what he's saying about the Taliban is a lie. They're absolutely waiting us out. Um, They're not going to stop. There is nothing for them to stop. They've been there forever. They're going to be there forever. They can't win militarily while they are winning. You know, for all the talk, and we're going to get into this in a minute, of bipartisanship, where Republicans are going to work with Democrats on Soros' jailbreak, weak on crime, Retroactive early release of the most hardened federal drug traffickers and gun felons. They're going to work on spending bills. They're going to work on delivering more Democrat voters through amnesty, through jailbreak and felons voting, and and some other voter anomalies we'll get to. 
but they won't try to push the one bipartisan endeavor that I think actually is worthwhile and is achievable. And that's kind of everyone in Congress getting together and saying, irrespective of where we are in Islam and whatever, I think can we all not shake hands on what we're doing in Afghanistan is just wasting our lives and money? I I, I don't understand how it is defensible, what we're doing there, what we're doing to our soldiers. If we honor the value of the living and understood the sacrifices of the dead, I don't understand how in a risk versus return matrix, a cost-benefit analysis of what we're doing, anyone can conclude that it's worthwhile. And indeed, you now have the U.S. government and failed military leadership admitting that there is no – there's nothing to win there. Again, the only thing worse than putting our soldiers in harm's way and the only thing worse than not having a defined mission is putting our soldiers in harm's way without a defined mission. Certainly one of strategic interest that actually affects us. I, I, I just don't understand it. And as I've said ad nauseum, we're bringing in 20,000 immigrants from there a year. The whole impetus for this was immigration, that people were brought to our shores who should have never been brought to our shores. So we go over there where they can't affect us unless we bring them here, and we bring them in. So that's what we're doing here. And again, like I said, you know, obviously, sometimes you got to pull the trigger on military deployment if, if, as a president, you feel there is a need for it. But you always have to value the lives of our men. And clearly from the policies our government has been pursuing over the last number of years through different administrations, different congresses, based on the rules of engagement, based on the aimless missions, we clearly don't value their lives. Don't get the wrong point here, but you know – Last week, we had another mass shooting in California, and it seems like it was a military veteran who had PTSD. I guess maybe a severe case of it. I don't know if there was more to it than that. I haven't really followed it that closely. And it turns out he was in Afghanistan. And I'm just thinking, you know, this is another cost that we fail to see. So it's not just the 6,000 or so casualties between Iraq and Afghanistan and now Syria dying on the sword of Islam, dying on the sword of one tribal warfare against another that doesn't affect us and can't hurt us when we should be focusing on immigration, terror financing on our own shores and missile defense. That is what national defense means. That's certainly bad enough. But you look at the Injuries, the debilitating, you know, just cutting off of limbs, lifelong incapacitations, lifelong illnesses, and yes, PTSD. This is a very big problem. Again, I'm not saying I don't know how many are are driven to do this, but in general, it's important to, and I'm not going to try to blame that directly on. You know, Afghanistan directly on this attack, but I'm just saying it should let us reflect a little bit about the concerns of what we're doing, placing them in the most insane 
mind-boggling, psychological, psychologically damaging situations in some hellhole somewhere in some, in some mountainous desert being guided by Afghani friends into one ambush after another with no ground being held. And, you know, this is what we need to do as conservatives with a mission, with a, with a new agenda, a new contract with America, is just like we have to reset the baseline on, on what it means to be a conservative on health care spending and immigration. We need to reset the baseline on what it means to be a national defense conservative. It doesn't just mean spending more money on the military in the abstract. No, it doesn't mean more spending. It means defining what defense is at its core, moving in to out. It's not bringing the problem to your shores, so it's immigration. It's going after soft power or terror finance. It's missile defense because that could always hit us. you got to have a defense for that and, and a nuclear offensive posture. That's what you need to spend your money on. And then from there, it's making the right alliances, the proper use of soft power, and making sure the key waterways in the Gulf of Aden, Suez, and um, in the Persian Gulf are kept open for business. Aside from that, we really don't have other interests. And yet we're not protecting those interests properly. Of course we need a strong standing army, a standing air force, standing marines. But it's these deployments and the nation building that's costing so much money and lives. Anyway. We, we, we just owe it to our veterans and our standing military, active duty, to properly use them. And I think, again, nobody – this is not a Republican or Democrat issue anymore. It never really was. Not liberal or conservative. It's just plain dumb. It's the inveterate rent seekers in government, military-industrial complex, military leadership is rotten to the core. Everyone knows that. Perpetuating the scam. At the expense of the grunts in the military. So God bless our soldiers. God bless our veterans and certainly those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice as we recognize on Memorial Day. So to just juxtapose, and, and I don't mean to be insensitive here. You know, I like to use analogies. I'm certainly not comparing real warfare to political warfare. But, you know, the same way we seem to have our military die on the sword of Islam, as I've uh, patented my term here, the reverse patent, as in General Patton. We do the reverse patent. General Patton said the object of war is to have the other SOB die for his country. Make the other SOB die for his country. So we die for other people's countries, other people's gutter ideologies. We die on the sword of Muhammad. That's really what we're doing with the Mogadishu, Raqqa, Baghdad, and Kabul urban renewal projects. Okay, so that's with that. But politically, as Republicans, and I don't consider myself one, but as conservatives, we die on the other side's ideology. So much so that with our policies, we create 
their voters, both by turning off our voters, by not drawing a bold contrast and exposing what they do that's damaging to swing voters in the suburbs. And then obviously by literally creating voters for them with immigration amnesty, open borders, felons voting, and a whole bunch of stuff. So Republicans come back this week, and there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going on that is downright Orwellian. That they're learning all the wrong lessons of the election. So we have the members of Congress flying in Tuesday, Wednesday. Wednesday afternoon is the big caucus meeting. Now, obviously, they don't get sworn until January, beginning of January, first week there. Um, Until then, we're going to have the lame duck session, which we'll get to in a minute. That is the current membership of this past Congress. But it's the new members that come in. Um, in addition to the old members for the lame duck session, they come in for freshman orientation where you know the conferences, respective caucuses, conferences of each party kind of put on a show for each one and orientation, you know, just like a school school orientation first day type of thing, uh, teaching them about the logistics and you know everything the A to Z's of coming to Washington. And they're gonna immediately vote on leadership elections. Now, um, because Paul Ryan is retiring, so you don't have any musical chairs here where you know everything gets pushed down one into the minority, where usually the speaker in the majority is the minority leader. Once they're in the minority, he's out. So Kevin McCarthy moved up the elections one week so he could just snap the ball, jump on it, and stay there. I mean, everything I hear, Jim Jordan's going to get crushed. And it doesn't have to be this way. Trump could endorse him. Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, and Hannity could endorse him. Rush could endorse him, make a big deal out of it. And believe me, it will be a big deal. People care about only what they know about. And they don't know about a leadership election, except for a few of us talking about it. So therefore, McCarthy is just going to win by acclamation. It's a secret vote, so no one ever has to you know, put themselves out on the line for it. No one knows. And that's it. In 2006, Mike Pence challenged John Boehner. He got 27 votes. I don't know if we're going to do any better. Now, either way, I could tell you that Chip Roy, the new incoming congressman from Texas 21, San Antonio area, who will be the best congressman in Washington, he uh, he will give the nominating speech for Jordan. So from day one, you could tell he doesn't give a darn about it, committee assignments or anything. He's just you know running into a buzzsaw there. Scalise will be minority whip. Um, now, Kathy McMorris Rogers has retired from being conference chair, the number three position. So that is, looks like the only one running for that is Cheney. Um, And, you know, she's not much better. Just a fresher face, maybe. But there we go. So we're going to reward the same leadership that took Republican dominance of the trifecta of government and literally for the first time in history did nothing with it. It is the most feckless governing majority we've ever seen where they owned all the liabilities as if they were spawning a revolution, but then did nothing, did nothing. All of the things that we yelped about for two years, they could be doing this and they could be doing that. And we went through the most strategic policy, electoral and political initiatives, meaning that they're good policy they're going to affect outcomes of elections, both by influencing voters because they're popular issues, but also by creating or 
not creating Democrat voters, such as all of our immigration ideas, going after identity fraud. You can't get better policy, better politics than that. Initiatives to stop non-citizens from voting, to update the motor voter statutes from the courts that are mandating voting without a photo ID, that are mandating ballot harvesting, that are mandating 30 days of early voting, that are mandating all of these anomalies that we're dealing with 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 the provisional ballots, and certainly the non-citizens voting. They're preventing states from checking proof of citizenship, and they wouldn't touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole, wouldn't touch it. But this is the leadership that we're going to reelect. Why am I focusing on this issue? Well, because it's still going on. We lost Arizona. We lost Montana. We're going to wind up losing like another eight House seats, probably a total of a loss of 40 House seats. And then this Florida, where they're gunning for the Senate, governor's race, and I believe Secretary of the Agriculture Commission That position, the Republican, was only up by a little bit. And it looks like if they get their way, even though Broward County didn't follow the rules, they're going to have a recount, hand a manual recount for the governor's race with Tim Scott and Bill Nelson, Rick Scott and and, and, and Bill Nelson, and uh, the senatorial race will be a machine count between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum. And I was floored. So a couple things, first off, two stories I want to share with you. One is a story from 2012, but it's more relevant today than ever. From Florida, from Channel 6 in South Florida. May 11th, 2012. Now, before I read the article, many of you have seen the news that Democrats are suing Literally, to demand that non-citizen votes get counted. Well, I thought they said that it's a conspiracy theory. What are you talking about, non-citizens voting? Ha ha, that's not happening. That's nonsense. All these cases, when we wanted to just simply, I mean, protect the franchise, integrity of our elections by having on the voter registration forms a box to verify proof of citizenship which you would think would be the most basic thing. And all the courts, from my, to my knowledge, I've seen it, the 10th Circuit, D.C. Circuit, the 9th Circuit, have prevented states from doing that. If you could ima- imagine that. Stolen sovereignty. I talk about it in my book, literally. No, foreigners will steal your thing. And, and one of the things they said is, you're burdening the franchise and there's no solid evidence that this is a problem. And now... They're saying, why don't you count their vote? How bad is this problem? Let me read you an article here. The line ra- So this was the 2012 elections. The line wrapped around the parking lot, and the weather was hot. But Joanne Calderon said she didn't mind. My gosh, it's a privilege, she said. Meantime, Nuria Kidd and Lillian Cabrera said it took them about four hours to vote. At Carl Pine Park in, in Pinecrest, Dolores... Mastrangelo came prepared with a chair, candy, water, and magazines. But Hylia Paul Onati said election officials were not organized. Richmond Heights Middle School was empty Tuesday afternoon. Theolia Carter said that was because many residents heeded the call for early voting. Florida officials are now saying that nearly 
200,000 registered voters may not be U.S. citizens. Earlier in the week, state election officials announced they had identified more than 2,600 people who are in Florida legally but ineligible to vote. The, the, the Department of State is asking county election officials to verify the information. Um, and basically, and I'm just skipping down here, an initial list drawn up by the state and not widely released shows that a comparison of voter lists and driver's license information turned up a list of nearly 182,000 people who may not be U.S. citizens. You know, I don't, I don't think you guys appreciate, or all of you necessarily appreciate, just how existential of a threat this is to our, our entire civilization, to democracy, to our republic. We're at the point where Republicans really cannot win Cal- Florida, even, even in a winning year, by much more than 100,000 votes. And you're telling me you have almost 200,000 voters potentially registered who are not U.S. citizens. Whether they're legal or illegal immigrants, that's immaterial to this. I guess it's all the more egregious if they're here illegally, but you know, it shouldn't matter. You, you have to be a citizen, and as we all want the case to be, you're only a voting member of a society if you're a citizen. And basically, at the time when Governor Rick Scott, ironically, was trying to match up these names and get them off the voter rolls, so he was requesting DHS data so he could tap into the database and definitively know who is – because you know DHS would have the full list of who is a legal immigrant. Certainly a legal immigrant, they would have the names, obviously, and match it against – the voter registration and boom, just weed out those names. I mean, we should all agree to that. I mean, I challenge my liberal listeners here. I mean, <laughs> we all want only citizens to vote, right? I would imagine. And certainly this is something the suburban voters that conservatives are, are bleeding would certainly agree with us on. And yet, and yet, the court said he can't do that. And he never really appealed it and, and whatever so here we are. Here we are. That is their margin of victory that they're trying to achieve. If you're a Republican, forget about policy and principle and what's good for the country. Because we know Republican leadership doesn't care about that. But they care. you would think they care about their own political survival. If they got into power with the trifecta of government, you would think this would be the first issue. It is existential to our government to the foundation of democracy, to the existence of their own party, and it's a winning issue. Nobody wants non-citizens voting. You would think they would have had legislation explicitly granting states the authority and the tools to weed out non-citizen voters and to check for proof of citizenship on the front end of registration. Because again, this is a prima facie threat. This is not some sort of far-flung thing. We have motor voter laws that automatically... Register people with driver's licenses that, that who come to register for driver's licenses. And by the way, now, even the ones that don't do it, they're passing automatic registration as it is in a lot of states. Democrats think of everything. So if we're going to think about what's going on here and the gravity of it, it doesn't take a genius to think that in a state like Florida that big, you might have several hundred thousand 
that are registered to vote. And a lot of them might not even realize it. A lot of them might not even know it's wrong because they register them. And Republicans did nothing about it. Now it comes back to bite them this election. And let me tell you something. You know what's interesting? See, Democrats are going to teach Republicans very, very quickly, very quickly, what it means to run a chamber of Congress, what it means to be in the majority, what it means to have a real movement and care about your own political agenda. See, NPR is reporting that Democrats are planning among their very ambitious agenda, and it will be an ambitious agenda. (laughs) The the, the contrast from Republicans will be just earth-shattering. Earth-shattering. So they're playing gun control, we know that. Planning a bunch of socialist stuff, healthcare spending, you name it. But one of the things, Democrats will take control of the U.S. House in January with big items topping their legislative to-do list. Remove obstacles to voting, close loopholes in government ethics law, and reduce the influence of political money. These are their euphemisms, obviously. What are they pushing? Well, they're pushing to establish automatic voter registration, meaning nationwide to mandate it. A lot of states are, are you know, especially blue ones, are electing to adopt it. So meaning... Obviously, when Republicans were in charge, we should have given states more leeway. Democrats are now in charge, and they're going to do their thing, which is giving them less leeway, creating a federal standard to reinvigorate the Voting Rights Act, crippled by a Supreme Court decision in 2013. Folks, here's the thing. That decision in Shelby County, if you remember my conversation with Logan Churchwell um, last week, it was just one provision of VRA it invalidated. The preclearance of districts in the South, it did nothing on, on, on all this stuff. And in fact, it invited more lawsuits. And since 2013, we have suffered defeat after defeat at every single lower court on every voting anom- anomaly. You got to give it to the Democrats. They'll win 98% of cases and they'll, and they'll you know, smartly look at you with a straight face as if that didn't happen. And like, this sucks. We're getting nothing here. We have voter suppression. We need legislation. I mean, meanwhile, they're laughing all the way to the bank. They know that they're winning. They will not settle for anything less than 100%. Yet conservatives will settle for 1%, 0%, 5 from their Republican leadership. The soft bigotry of low expectations. You want to know what a majority party could accomplish with three branches of government? Go and watch what the Democrats are about to accomplish Officially with one branch of government. But really, they have the Senate too, as we've said very often. So, I mean, this is what we don't realize. See, we worry about the elections just in November. Democrats, electioneering is a 365-day-year endeavor where they're constantly registering people, constantly looking for ways to get new voters. Constantly manipulating the process. And that's the thing. Whoever controls the process and the courts control elections. And that's what you're seeing now where we're basically at the mercy of election stealing now. They're reaping the benefits of this while this party has been asleep. You know, it's funny. I've been hearing this crap 
from so many, so many of you, by the way, and I don't mean you listeners, but you know, I get these messages. Uh, stop bashing Republicans. We have to win the election. We can't let Democrats win. So, like, nothing matters in between the two Novembers, but the elections. Forget about policy. But ironically, I'm the only one focused on the policies and the processes and the courts that will determine the actual outcome of the elections. I've called for all this stuff on my list of legislation. Winning issues. Winning suburban issues. Yet, we're not. We're getting nothing. And now Democrats will spend time pushing all of this. So there's that. There's that issue. Then we have the next issue. Jailbreak. So, I mean, folks, you... This is like a perfidy and betrayal on 10 different political and ideological levels all at once. I could not have created a better story if I wrote a book on this. So Republicans lose an election. And, you know, the more it seems, the more you study this election, especially down ballot, they really lost a lot more than we thought initially. All for nothing. All for dying on the other side's ideology. So you look at the the results and it's clear Republicans are losing, you know, upper middle class voters in suburbs that are not for Hamas, they're not for MS-13. They don't want a lot of this agenda. But, you know, they're turned off by a lot of Trump Trump's personality, some of it rightfully, some of it wrongfully. But that's the story. And there's so many issues for which we can win them back on. And the first thing Republicans plan to do in the lame duck session, so you can imagine, you know, you just lost an election. You need to win back suburbs. Moreover, you have one more month left to your own governance before the Democrats take over the House. Figure, all right, well, let's create our own voters. Let's stop open borders. So we stop Democrat voters from there. Let's stop identity theft. Let's stop non-citizens from voting. Let's work on some of these election ballot issues. No. What they are pushing right away is jailbreak, a mixture of this First Step Act passed by the House that we spoke about all this year or this half a year, which are the back end jailbreak. Those are the early release time credits left and right that knock a few years off sentencing for the worst gun felons and drug traffickers sitting in federal prison, by the way, because we're only talking about federal prison. This is congressional legislation as well as the Senate Judiciary's bill on front-end sentencing reduction at, at the front gate. And they're putting the two together so the leniencies of both will result, just to give you a sense, if someone normally, let's say you would have a, a heroin trafficker, let's say you'd get 20 years in prison, you now get seven years and 10 months. If you look at all these programs and and all these programs, oh, they have to they have to get these educational programs. It's all under current policy. They could attend these things. There's no change in their behavior they have to do to get the stuff. So even if you, you know, believed in this BS that somehow some of this will change, you know, oh, they'll they'll be better people when they come out of jail. No, no. Suburban voters, think about it. Imagine this bill has enough stuff that could write five years worth of TV ads against Democrats. But not only aren't they exposing the Democrats, 
running ads on them, they're championing it with the Heritage Foundation and every single phony conservative group. I am the last man standing, as well as some some law enforcement agencies. It is it is unbelievable. And they're pushing this right away. They're getting the White House to push it in contravention to everything Trump has said on the campaign trail and in his entire career. So tomorrow we're going to have a comprehensive piece out on this. But could you imagine at a time when we need to be winning suburban voters on safety and security? It's a tailor-made agenda. We don't have to reinvent the wheel to win back these voters. Just be who Republicans were for the last half a century. But no. Another important point, Democrats are going to be working on a gun control agenda, really tapping into the news cycle and all the violence and the shootings. What better jujitsu on them to show the American people these little SOBs want to strip gun rights from American citizens who are beleaguered by the dangerous violence now in our cities from weak on crime policies and sanctuary cities of Democrats, yet they want to let out gun felons from federal prison. Isn't that a good issue to shove in their face? But no, Republicans support it now. Not only are they giving them a loincloth, they're supporting it themselves. And as I've said very often, most of the people in federal prison on drug trafficking charges and gun felon charges are really bad dudes. Either they're foreign nationals So the whole issue over the federal prison population, too many people in federal prison for drug charges, is false because a lot of this is foreign nationals. You look at the Lawrence, Massachusetts drug bust, 40 names on it. Every one of them is a foreign national. It's an immigration problem. It's a sanctuary problem. It's a border problem. Do our 25 items on immigration and then come back to me if we have too many people in federal prison for drug charges. Because remember, even the Americans that get involved in the secondary trafficking, it's only because you have the open borders allowing the criminal alien networks to operate at a primary trafficking level. But then even the Americans involved, these are often the worst people. They're people with massive histories in the state system that eluded justice. The example I always give is Kate Steinle's murderer. He escaped justice in California. So Sessions charged him with um, gun and um, immigration charges. Doesn't sound that terrible, but we know he's a murderer. And that's why they're going to seek long sentences for him. That's what you have in federal. So you have to understand the federal system. Not to mention, as I've always said, the federal prison population is – state and federal is plummeting, but federal even more. Crime is going back up in a lot of metropolitan areas. More people than ever escape the mandatories even now. Just 12% of those convicted on drug trafficking in 2016 completed a mandatory, full mandatory sentence. And here's another interesting thing from the U.S. Sentencing Commission. 72.8% of federal offenders sentenced in 2016 had already been convicted of a prior offense with the average of them having accrued six convictions. These are not low-level offenders in federal prison. It is the biggest lie around. And as we've noted many times, 
they're starting with the drug traffickers, but they're going to go to the violent offenses too because they know as well as I know that most people in, in prison are for violent crimes. And if you really want to reduce the prison population, which is their goal, not reducing crime, reducing the prison population, the only way you're going to achieve that is by reducing sentencing for violent crime. And indeed, I don't know if it's going to make this way in this final iteration of the merged bill, but the original Senate judiciary bill was a bill that contained section section 208 of the Sentencing Reform Whatever and Corrections Act contained a provision reopening sentencing for juvenile murderers after 20 years. You know, if they're convicted, let's say, to life in prison without parole. And again, if you're in federal prison, usually, you know, regular murder charges a state offense. Usually they're going to be MS-13 or something like that. Has all sorts of crazy burdens, as we talked about on many of our other episodes, on prison wardens, on the Bureau of Prisons, all these burdens to run all these programs, but they offer them no money because they want to say they're cutting costs, meaning they want to have it both ways. If you're going to have all these programs, you got to fund it. So, you know, the prison wardens union, union put out a statement saying this is going to endanger our, our wardens. It's going to put them in, you know, precarious situations. For example, if you have to have them more unshackled time, more this, more access to computers, more access to this, it's going to be very hard for them. This is not thought through. Crazy, crazy provisions. I can go on and on. But this is what we have here. And I want to note one more point here. You see, a couple months ago, Democrats, really less than two months ago, Democrats raked Brett Kavanaugh over the coals, tried to destroy his life without due process. We are now taking, the Republicans are taking, Trump is taking these very members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, all of them, all the ones running for president, and we're passing their legislation. Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, maybe Amy Klobuchar. This is sickening beyond belief. Orwell could not have written a story like this. And yet I'm the only one even talking about this. And you know what's so dishonest about this jailbreak issue? If you ever followed any of these legislative fights in Washington, usually what happens is the swamp starts off with a premise. So their issue to create Democrat voters, which, again, is what this is, because that's why you have a parallel movement with all of the early release bills to have felons vote, like you have in Florida now. That's where this is headed. But our side just walks the ball in the end zone for them. And by the way, see, as I keep talking about this jailbreak issue, the more I talk about it, just my brain just fills with different ideas and points. You know, there's a whole separate issue I need to write about that Cornell, among others, run the education in the prisons. And let me tell you something. It's pretty raunchy. It's revolutionary liberation theology stuff. Prisoners are great. The police suck. The system is wrong. That's what they teach them. So, I mean, you want to talk about prison reform? Oh, I'll tell you, we need prison reform, all right. Very different reform that they're going to have. 
I mean, at least if you're going to have these programs, <laughs> while you're at it, while you're giving Democrats what they want in early release bills, at least teach them like patriotic stuff. I mean, Democrats are always thinking about their political outcomes with their policy agenda. Why can't our side ever do that? No, we have to think about the other side's political outcomes. It's truly unbelievable. It's just, it's just in, inconceivable what they're doing. So th- th- there's a bunch of other things going on here. Bunch of other things. Remember, only 10% of the nation's prisoners are serving federal sentences in federal prison. These are the worst of the worst. So, you know, there's that. And then, you know, you got all these good time credits, crazy, crazy stuff. I'm talking about really crazy stuff in there. This is the stuff that used to start in, in, in Maryland in the 90s. We're like, man, I'm glad it's only in Maryland where you have crazies living, where they're doing this stuff. Now you have every single Republican, every conservative, and you have all these groups getting conservative money, Soros money, left-wing money, Coke money, all supporting this stuff, all supporting this garbage. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Just really sad. And, you know, this has a whole provision allowing them to serve out the remainder of their sentencing in home confinement. Home confinement is meaningless. The number of people that have gotten out and committed bad crimes. And yes, illegal aliens who comprise a large share of the federal drug population, federal prison population serving drug sentences, they will be eligible for home confinement and will not be turned over to ICE right away. And again, you have to understand there's a major security issue here because they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. See, if you want to have this whole nuanced way of criminal justice reform, you got to put money into it. So I'll give you a perfect example. I was told by the um, VP, not the VP, but the (laughs) VP, Assistant Director of the Bureau of Prisons, that the cost per diem to house a prisoner in the joint in a federal institution is $33 per diem. Cost of a halfway house is $44 and home confinement $80. Give or take, it's in somewhere in the 80s. I don't have I don't have the email in front of me now. But it's almost twice as much. Because think about it, I mean, you know, say what you want about prisons, but it's a fist, you know, a lot of fixed costs. And once you have the institution, you got the institution. If you want to replicate the entire security apparatus in a different setting, that's going to cost money. You got to allocate that money. They're not doing it because their whole point is to say they're saving money, which is dishonest. Also, so they talk about halfway houses, home confinement, and then, quote, community. Um, what, what, what do they call this? Not community policing. Um, trying to think what they uh, what the euphemism is for it. 
but they basically have this ill-defined sort of home confinement community supervision. That's what it is. What the hell is that? They don't define it. This bill is written like a talking point. And by the way, now we no longer have the talking point that, oh, Jeff Sessions is attorney general, so don't worry. Well, he's not attorney general. And it looks like Whitaker won't be for much longer either. So now we do have to worry about it because chances are the one who they get is going to be a jailbreaker. So don't give me this stuff. You know, because they're going to play games and say, well, it's only low-level people. But it doesn't define low-level in statute. It gives it over to the executive branch to do it. So in any Democrat administration, and really most Republicans who aren't Jeff Sessions, think about it. If the Heritage Foundation supports it, then all of them support it. They're going to define it very liberally. And they have that full discretion to do so, by the way. And then they massively expand the safety valve. So right now you have a safety valve, which really looks at a person's history and everything. And that, that, that's the joke. A lot of people are like, what the hell? It's like, you know, carte blanche. There's no discretion of a judge. We just take anyone, even if there's no reason, and we lock them up for 50 years. But it's, it's, it's just not true, and it never was. And it certainly hasn't been the last eight to ten years where we've been extremely lenient. We have a safety valve. It's written into statute. I would argue they've taken it too far. But here it allows – it gives judges unfettered discretion to ignore the offender's prior criminal history. So anyone with priors is going to get the safety valve. The whole point was to say, no, no, first-time offenders. No, it explicitly does it for repeat offenders. So there's that. I could go on and on and on. I could talk forever. But you want to know something? Facts and details about the trends in the prison population, facts and details about crime rates, about the nature of the federal prisoners, the role of illegal aliens in drug trafficking and the federal prison population, the current weak policies of safety valves, the details of what the bill actually does and doesn't do. None of that matters. The direction of the broader movement pushing this bill and where they're coming from and where they're headed with it doesn't matter. But the reality is that chanting mindless slogans about ill-defined criminal justice reform, like the sheeple in Animal Farm, doesn't alter these facts. We're going to keep talking about these facts. Man, I got this massive centipede (laughs) just crawling right above me here. Wow. It's like two inches long. Um, Glad my wife isn't around. (laughs) She'd freak out. Uh, Anyway, before we move on to our final item here, and there's so much more to go over, we're going to have to – this is going to be a packed week. I wanted to just uh, update you on immigration, the next area where we're creating Democrat voters. But um, I just want to go over uh, the Foundation for Safeguarding Justice did a survey on this bill. And unlike our opponents who – mischaracterize the question so they'll say do you think a first-time offender smoking one cigarette of whatever marijuana in college should be locked up in jail forever i mean that's the type of garbage to last which is just they'll just ask things that just aren't true 
So, you know, they were asked in this survey a very up or down question. It wasn't like, you know, skewed towards us. Like we didn't say, oh, you know, federal drug traffickers who tend to have armed robbery and other things on their rap sheet. No, we didn't add that in. Straight up question whether they would support or oppose a proposal to reduce federal government penalties for traffickers in heroin, fentanyl, and similar drugs. Here's the results. Okay? Here are the results. 87% of Republicans said they would oppose such a proposal. Only 9% support. 70% of Democrats oppose 22% support. 73% of Indies oppose 17% support. 77% 77% of whites oppose. 71% of African Americans oppose. 64% of Hispanics oppose. 74% of women oppose. 73% of males oppose. Okay? You tell me any other, show me any other policy that you could possibly conjure up that you will find more favorable polling with. Similarly, consistent results were obtained when respondents were asked whether they would think more or less highly of their congressional representative for supporting a proposal that would reduce penalties for trafficking in heroin and fentanyl and similar drugs and allow drug traffickers and other criminals to be released to home confinement before completing their prison sentences. It's a a very technical poll. It's perfectly worded. It's not loaded at all. It describes the bill as is. Their intentions and where they're headed and the results are much worse. And I could ask the question in a worse way, but they did not do that here. Again, 82% of Republicans would think less likely, 60% of Democrats, on and on. 88% of Republicans believe the federal government is either not tough enough or about right. 75% of Democrats believe the same thing. I mean, folks, you're not going to get better surveys than this. So there's a lot of lot of information here. I'm going to try to link to it in show notes. But before we uh, conclude here, I just want to update you on immigration. You know, Trump was elected, which with much uh, pomp and energy very much boyoed by the immigration issue. What have we accomplished in the last two years with the trifecta of control? Some of it's not his fault. It's the courts, but he should have fought back against them. Congress isn't that, but he should have vetoed their budget bills. The October numbers of, for the border apprehensions are out. They came out over the weekend. So this is the first month of fiscal year 2019. Remember when we reported on September and we talked about record numbers of family units crossing? Do you know that that number rose by almost 40%, that record, in um, October from September? Family units. Did you know that over 60,000, almost 61,000 illegals were apprehended? At our border in October, 61,000, which means that it's very likely at least that many were not interdicted, right? You have to at least double it. And the higher the numbers get, the fewer we, the, the lower the interdiction rate is. 
the entire Trump effect has been wiped out. In fact, with interest, the last time we exceeded 60,000 apprehensions was, I believe, October or November of 2016 during the lame duck of Obama, you know, when it was the culmination of all his magnets. I believe from my count, I can't verify 100%, but I have the data going back to 2011, uh, 2011. I believe this is only the fourth time that apprehensions have exceeded 60,000 since the Great, Re- Great Recession. That's some progress, folks. That is some progress for you. And again, we got the caravan coming, and the administration is using this broad authority that I said they have and they're invoking it, but they're invoking it to implement a narrow policy. Rather than shutting it all down, they're saying, hey, and, and saying only go to our consulates in Mexico, they're saying come to our points of entry. Well, where do you think the caravan's going to go? They go there anyway. Family units apprehended skyrocketed by 2,000% since the nadir of the flow in the spring of 2017 when when Central Americans thought that Trump would close the border. We're going to have an article on that tomorrow. All these people, they come here. The kids, whether with the family units or the UACs, unaccompanied teenagers who are self-trafficked by their families to live here with other illegals, they get status. They wind up getting green cards and they wind up voting. You're seeing this in the electoral returns everywhere. I don't know what to tell you. These are all policies we discussed today. Voter fraud, immigration, jailbreak with felons voting. It's not just good policy. If, you, if you're a Republican, I, I, I can't understand why you wouldn't fight this tooth and nail because it's good messaging and it's good for your party. But instead you do the opposite. Toss a loincloth to the other party. And give them voters. I don't know. But anyway, we're going to watch the leadership election. We're going to report back to you on the shenanigans. I'm going to give you as much as I can the inside scoop on it. And everything else this week. But remember, let's stay focused. Let's stay focused on what matters. And that's why I really appreciate you guys tuning in here. Sending me your emails. You can always email me at dhorowitz at crtv.com. That's H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. For the last name, two O's in there, and tweet me at RM Conservative. Till next time, busy, busy week. God bless. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience.